turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, we're going to read just the first 10 verses of that chapter this morning. That's where we're going to spend our time. You can also, hopefully you've got your diagram um, that we're going to refer to that uh, a number of times this morning. There are still a couple of copies on the stool at the back of the of the, uh, of the church, so if you didn't uh, get one, you're welcome to just jump up quickly and, and have one of those before you. Let's read together God's word uh, from Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Just so far in God's word this morning. Please keep it open before you uh, as we look at this passage together. I have uh, really wrestled this week um, as to how to tackle this passage of Scripture today because the subject of the millennium, uh, the 1,000-year period mentioned six times in Revelation chapter 20, is possibly one of the most divisive subjects among Christians across the globe today, and so I don't want to add any further division uh, or further confusion on the subject but historically, over the last uh, 2,000 years or so of church history, there have been three main views of interpreting Revelation 20. There is the historic premillennial view, which teaches that Jesus uh, will return to the earth pre the millennium. In other words, before a 1,000-year period, a literal period in which Christ will establish uh, his kingdom on earth and this will be a golden age of peace and prosperity for the church, which will last up until just before the end, uh, when there will be a great rebellion uh, against Jesus, against the church, 
and then the judgment day will come. That's the historic premillennial view. Then there's the post-millennial view, which teaches that before Jesus returns, the gospel will continue to just progress across the globe, and gradually the whole world will be won to Christ. And this period then will be known uh, as the millennium. Some hold it to be a literal period. Some see it as a symbolic period. But it'll be a time in which, a thousand year time in which um, sin and its effects will gradually decrease. Justice and the righteousness of Christ will gradually increase until all of society is transformed and we will just transition smoothly into the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns post-millennium, after the millennium. And then there's a third view, is the amillennial view, which teaches that the 1,000-year period referred to as the millennium is not a literal 1,000 years of the physical kingdom of Christ on earth, but it is a symbolic description of the spiritual kingdom of Jesus Christ present on earth throughout the church age from the first coming to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to the amillennial view, we are thus living in the millennium now, and we will continue to do so until just before the very end uh, when there will be a great rebellion against Jesus and the church, and then the judgment day will come. Now, these differences over the last 2,000 years uh, of church history have, have never really been a matter over which Christians and congregations and denominations divide. All three of these views, for example, can be seen to be held by prominent um, post-Reformation pastors and theologians over the last 400 years who would agree on everything else but would take one of these three views regarding the end times. But then over the last 100 years or so, a fourth view has, has not only arisen, but has become the predominant view, particularly in American Western Christianity. And that is the dispensational premillennial view, or what is known as classic dispensationalism. Don't worry too much about the terms if you're not interested. But that view focuses exclusively on an entirely literal and Israel-centric interpretation of the end-time prophecies in the Bible, in which the millennium uh, is believed to be a literal period of a thousand years where a restored Jewish political nation or state will reign with Jesus over the whole world. Unfortunately for many in Christianity today, this fourth view has become highly politicized and, and highly sensationalized uh, and has brought about much division between Christians. Many Christians refusing to even have fellowship with other believers unless they hold to this view of revelation that they do and how it particularly pertains to their view of the modern day state of Israel. So that's the landscape and that's as technical as I'm going to get today about the, the different viewpoints to the millennium because what I've tried to do is, from the very beginning of our series, I've tried to show you the approach that I'm taking to Revelation, which if you look at your diagram again, you'll see the, the heading, it's called the progressive parallel view. 
uh, which sees the whole book of Revelation as a, a series of parallel visions describing the entire church age between the first coming of Jesus Christ on the left-hand side and the second coming of Jesus Christ on the right-hand side of your diagram. And each of those seven visions ends with the return of Jesus, a singular coming, second coming event which brings about the judgment of the wicked and which brings uh, eternal blessedness then for those who belong to Jesus. And so the view that I'm proposing for Revelation chapter 20 and the 1,000 year period is no different. It's been on your diagram all along. It's the standard uh, amillennial view, uh, which is better called the inaugurated millennial view because we believe that the millennium has already been inaugurated with the first coming of Jesus. And this view teaches that the millennium is not an exact period of 1,000 years, but it is a symbolic description of the entire gospel age until Jesus Christ returns on the clouds. And so if you look at your, your seventh row there, you will see on your diagram the two blue blocks at the bottom represent Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to 3 and 4 to 6 as describing or covering the entire church age. And then after that, the final yellow block comes at the end of the seventh cycle, and that describes the final day of destruction uh, of Satan, and again, the judgment of the wicked uh, and the judgment of all mankind before the, the great white throne of Jesus when he returns. And so hopefully, if you've been part of our series since the beginning, you will see that the way that I approach these verses in Revelation chapter 20 is consistent with the approach that we've taken throughout the book from the very beginning, which is to see Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6 as another parallel vision covering the entire period of the church age. And I think that fits most naturally into the reading of the book. And so as we come to our passage today, uh, we will see that Revelation 20 verses 1 to 10 divides quite logically into three main sections, and we're going to just take them uh, as they come. We're going to see the binding of Satan in the gospel age, that's verses 1 to 3. Then we're going to see the departed saints reigning with Jesus in heaven, verses 4 to 6. And then we're going to see the loosing of Satan in verses 7 to 10. So let's start with verses 1 to 3 with the binding of Satan in the gospel age. Now before I read those verses again, uh, let me remind you that from the very beginning of our studies in Revelation, we have considered the highly symbolic nature of this apocalyptic genre. That's the, the genre in which this book is written. We've seen vivid, uh, bright, bold language and images which are not meant to be understood literally, but which are meant to be understood symbolically or spiritually as pointing to, to very particular, very definite spiritual truths, spiritual realities. And we will see that this is the case once again in these verses. 
Let's read again verse 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So immediately in these verses, we see a whole host of symbolic language being used to paint the next bright picture in John's vision. We see a key, a bottomless pit, there's a great chain, there's a dragon who is also a snake being bound with this chain and then there's a lid being put on the pit, it's sealed, it's locked with a key and the period of all of this binding is a thousand years. Now as we, as we read these verses, some bells should be ringing in your mind because many of these symbols uh, have been encountered before and, and so we need to take our cue from those earlier references in Revelation. But most importantly this morning, we have here a reference to the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Now that is the identical uh, description that we encountered of Satan back in chapter 12 at the beginning of the fourth cycle of visions. And so maybe you want to turn in your Bibles back to chapter 12 and I'm going to look at a couple of verses there again. And so if this parallel approach to the book of Revelation is correct, then if John makes a reference here to, to Satan using the exact same words that he used back in chapter 12, well then maybe chapter 12 can help to shed some light on what John is describing here. You will recall that chapter 12, uh, that's the beginning of the fourth vision, took us back to the beginning of Christ's birth and how the dragon sought to devour the Messiah child at birth so as to bring the plans of God to nothing. Now read with me from chapter 12, verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That should ring a bell from last Sunday. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman, who we saw at the time was a reference to the church, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So what John's vision, uh, what John saw took place on the earth during the first coming of Jesus, Revelation then 12 continues to describe the spiritual realities that were going on in heaven at the same time. Satan was on the earth ready to devour uh, Christ as he was born, but what was taking place in the spiritual realm? We'll look at Revelation 12, verse 7. Now a war rose, uh, sorry, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, here it is, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So back when we looked at chapter 12, uh, and if you look at your diagram, you will see this, that Revelation 12 describes Satan's activity on the earth during this entire church age, 
Firstly, trying to destroy Christ at his birth, then trying to destroy Christ during his life and ultimately in his death on the cross. But when that failed with Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, we were told then that the dragon became furious and he went out to make war on the church and to make war on the individual followers of Christ on the earth. And, and that continues unabated today. Now please notice something very important in chapter 12, verse 9. The dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, is described by his primary weapon of spiritual warfare. He is described as the deceiver of the whole world. Now, turn back to Revelation chapter 20 with me to this parallel vision that we have to chapter 12. As we come to chapter 20, we again see an angel in heaven taking this dragon by the scruff of the neck. And with a great chain, he binds him and he throws him into the bottomless pit and he locks the lid over him. Now, what is this symbolic language trying to convey? What spiritual truth is this vision that John has revealing to us? We know that Satan is a spirit being. He's a fallen angel. Satan cannot be bound by a steel chain. He cannot be locked behind bars. So what then is the nature of this picture, of this binding? What is the purpose of it? Well, verse 3 tells us, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Chapter 12 described him as the serpent who deceived the whole world. And now we are told that he is bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Now it's, it's worthwhile to just pause here for a moment and to consider the history of the world up to this point where Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago. And to realize that at the point of Jesus' first coming, the entire globe of humanity, there was only one nation who knew the true and living God of the Bible. And within that one nation of Israel, the majority only knew about God in a very kind of formal and religious way. They did not love him and serve him and worship him as their personal savior and Lord. Even within Israel, there was only ever a tiny minority. The Bible uses the language of a remnant, a tiny remnant of true believers in the promised Messiah who was to come. Everyone else in Israel and everyone else across the entire globe was lost in their sin and in the spiritual darkness and blindness of the dragon's deception. Chapter 12, verse 9 told us he was the deceiver of the whole world. But then Jesus comes to earth, and the new age of the power of the gospel begins. Jesus announced in the gospels that his ability to cast out demons is a confirmation that the kingdom of God has come in the present tense with his first coming. We see that in Matthew 12. 
But at the same time, Jesus made it clear that his kingdom was not of this world. It was a, a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom in which he would proclaim the good news to the poor. He would proclaim forgiveness of sins, giving sight to the blind, and setting the captives free. So when we stand back and we look at the world today, we see that for the last 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has grown to cover the entire earth. For the previous 6,000 years of world history, despite one whole nation knowing the truth about God and the prophets declaring the truth and even the gospel being preached to pagan nations, there was only ever a tiny remnant of those who truly believed. But in the last 2,000 years, there are literally hundreds of millions of true followers of Jesus Christ from almost every nation and language and tongue on the planet. How on earth is that possible? How is it possible that for 6,000 years with an entire nation knowing the truth, only a handful ever believed, and in the last 2,000 years, hundreds of millions now believe in Jesus Christ? What's the explanation? Human nature hasn't changed. We haven't suddenly become more enlightened and better people. The depravity of man has not changed. What has changed? Revelation 20 tells us what changed. Satan is bound. Satan is bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 3, speaking of his power over Satan as he cast out demons. He said, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. The exact same word used here in Revelation. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Praise God that Satan is bound in the first coming of Jesus. If Satan was not bound, you and I would still be lost in his deception of unbelief like the rest of mankind. But Satan is bound and Jesus is plundering his house through the preaching of the gospel. But read in conjunction with the rest of Revelation, we, we need to be careful that we don't misunderstand this binding. We must see that Satan's binding during the church age is not a complete binding. We've seen already that he is able to pursue and persecute people on earth. He still succeeds in deceiving kings and rulers and governments. His beasts, we saw, persecute and deceive the masses. But throughout this period of Christ's millennial reign on earth, his power is curtailed. He's been kept on a tight leash by God so that every person whom God has chosen to save will be brought in and there is nothing that Satan can do to stop God's purposes in the gospel. In Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We are in this kingdom age of gospel proclamation as Jesus plunders the house of Satan. And so we are living right now in this 
symbolic period of a thousand years between the first and the second coming of Jesus. Satan is bound. The gospel is proclaimed. And for a season in all of our lives, this message of salvation, it was veiled to us while we were perishing. Our hearts at some point in our lives were blind to this truth. But when God shone the light of his glory into our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ. There was nothing that Satan could do. God's purposes in saving you and saving me were accomplished and continue to be accomplished. And I've been praying that those same purposes would be accomplished in some of your hearts here today who do not know Jesus Christ yet. When God shines his light into your heart, Satan flees. Cornelius Venema writes, this is the one great purpose and effect of Satan's binding so far as the explicit language of Revelation 20 is concerned. Satan is bound so that he can neither prevent the spread of the gospel among the nations nor effectively deceive the nations any longer. This vision confirms the teaching that the period between Christ's first coming and his second coming is one in which the gospel of the kingdom will be powerfully and effectively proclaimed to the nations of Jesus Christ. But there is also another way in which Satan is bound during this millennium, which is that he is unable to unite all the unbelievers of the world against the church. Yes, you might face individual persecution at, at school, at work, in your family. And yes, we see even today in some countries there is a, a national persecution against Christians. But Satan is bound in terms of uniting all unbelievers, all governments, all military powers to gather together to destroy the church. How do we know this? Well, we know this from what happens a little bit later in the vision. Just look down to verse 7. When Satan is released, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And what will he do when he's released? Well, he just goes back to his old modus operandi. He will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So just as in the Old Testament times, all the nations were deceived by Satan and in a sense gathered against the nation of Israel who had the truth of God's word, so at the end of this period of the church age, Satan will be released. He will gather all the unbelievers of the world against the church for this great battle. William Hendrickson explains through this gospel age, the devil's influence on earth is curtailed. He's bound. He's unable to prevent the extension of the church among the nations by means of active missionary programs. During this entire period, he's also prevented from causing the nations, the world in general, to destroy the church as a mighty missionary institution. In regions where the devil once had been allowed to exercise almost unlimited authority during Old Testament times, he now is compelled to see the servants of Christ gaining territory little by little. So I believe the view that I am proposing today to our understanding of the millennium is not only most consistent uh, with the whole book of Revelation, uh, but is most consistent in terms of what we see unfolding in the world events of history. 
We don't see the world getting progressively better and better until one day we just kind of smoothly transition into heaven. No, in reality, we see the world getting worse and worse, more and more evil, more and more lawless, and yet, and yet Satan is bound. The church continues to grow and the gospel continues to win ground. So we don't underestimate the power of Satan. We are fully aware of his schemes. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But as the story of Pilgrim's Progress tells us, as Christian had to walk that that narrow path between those two roaring lions on each side, lunging towards him, he was kept safe down the middle because the lions were chained. What a great comfort to know that Satan is bound for this 1,000-year period. Let's move on then in the second place to see the departed saints reigning uh, in heaven, reigning with Jesus in heaven. Now we've seen in verses, uh, this is in verse four to six, and we've seen a number of times already in our studies uh, in Revelation that although Satan's power is limited by God, that he nevertheless is furious at Jesus, and he lives to make war against the church and against the saints of God. We saw that back in chapter six, verse three to eight, persecuting the church. We see that in chapter six, verse nine to 11, even putting some to death because he knows his time is short. So the question is is placed before us then, what happens to those who die between the first and the second coming of Jesus? What happens to those who die in the Lord during the millennium, during this church age? Those who either die as martyrs or those who simply die as faithful servants of Jesus in this life. We were told in chapter 14, verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So we know that that those who are sealed by the Lamb, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, when they die in the Lord, they are called blessed, and they enter into the rest of Christ. But now the next part of John's vision in chapter 20 gives us a wonderful insight into what is called the intermediate state. The intermediate state is what theologians use to refer to the time between the first and the second coming of Christ for believers who die. Before the final resurrection of our bodies and the coming of the new heavens and the new earth, And so let's read uh, from verse four to six. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And I saw those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And so verse four to six gives us this glimpse into the courts of heaven to see what happens to believers in Jesus Christ who die before the Lord returns. 
And again, we must remember this vision is a symbolic vision. It's pictures conveying spiritual truth. And so John sees a royal court. There's thrones. There's those seated on them with authority to judge. Now, some people have tried to to kind of create a clear distinction between the the three groups that John sees in heaven. There's thrones uh, with those authority to judge. Some would say that's the 12 apostles of Jesus. And there's a case to be made for that. Then there are those who were martyred for their faith. And then there were those who simply were faithful to Jesus. They did not worship the beast or its image who who died as faithful uh, servants of Christ. And I don't think we are meant to draw too much distinction here to what John sees because it does seem as you read those verses that all of those who were pictured in this vision are ruling and reigning with Jesus for a thousand years. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 2 that it will be the saints in heaven who will reign with Jesus and we will judge the world. We will even judge angels. And so it would be consistent with the New Testament then to not try and divide these groups up too much, uh, but to see them collectively as referring to all the departed saints in heaven as ruling and reigning and judging with Jesus until he returns. Another confirmation uh, that John's vision is referring to all the departed saints. It's found in verse 6. He says those in heaven are reigning with Christ, are priests of God and of Christ. This is something which Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 and chapter 5 verse 10 have already told us twice that all those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we are a kingdom of priests to serve our God and Savior. We are Christ's mediators on earth. We are his ambassadors. So if we are his priests here on earth, how much more are the saints in heaven not perfectly the servants of God and of Christ? No longer serving in the earthly temple of the old covenant, no longer serving in the spiritual temple of the new covenant church, but now serving in the very presence of God himself. Now, what exactly this priestly service and reigning and judging looks like, we we aren't told, except to know that every departed saint is vindicated, they are victorious, and they are at rest with Jesus. I think it's these spiritual realities which caused Paul to write in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If, if I'm to live in the flesh, well, that means fruitful labor for you and for me. But what I desire, what I want to choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, just a quick word here about John's description of these saints in heaven as being resurrected Uh, Again, if you take a very literal reading to this symbolic book, well, then you have to conclude here that John must be referring to a literal resurrection of the body. And this is certainly the way that many would try to interpret this. But as we've seen in, in every aspect of this book so far, even in these verses, John's vision is highly symbolic. We've got keys, we've got chains, we've got dragons, we've got thrones, It would be very strange if amidst all of the symbolic language, suddenly his reference to the resurrection here is to a literal bodily resurrection. 
No, the, the spiritual nature of this resurrection is seen in verse 4. John sees in heaven those reigning with Christ as souls. This is not referring to the bodily resurrection. His use of the word resurrection has to show that although the body died on the earth, perhaps being beheaded or martyred, even so their souls are raised, are resurrected to life and reign with Christ during this period in heaven before he returns. 1 Corinthians 15 is abundantly clear that the physical resurrection of the body will take place when Jesus returns. But what happens to those who die in the Lord until then? Well, this description of the spiritual resurrection of the souls of saints is such an encouragement and hope. Think back to those seven churches who received this letter, who had lost loved ones to persecution. Those who were plodding along faithfully in the Lord and about to die. What an encouragement to know that they would be, their souls would be raised to Christ and they would reign with him. Verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. This is the same language used in chapter 14. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. By the way, this use of resurrection language to describe spiritual resurrection is also common in the New Testament. Various New Testament writers draw an analogy between Christ's physical resurrection and our spiritual resurrection. You can see that in Romans chapter 6 verse 4, Romans 8 verse 11, Ephesians 2 verse 6, and Colossians 3 verse 1. And so it's certainly appropriate that John uses this this phrase, the first resurrection, to describe the, the spiritual ascending of souls rising to be with the Lord in heaven. Cornelius Venema again says, because of their participation in the first resurrection, believers in Christ are not liable to the power and dominion of death, including the second death, which is the eternal separation from the presence and the favor of God. And C. Clements writes this, I love this. They who are the Lord's rise twice and die but once. They who are not the Lord's rise once but die twice. Can I say that again? Those who are the Lord's, we rise twice if we die before his return. We rise once when we ascend to heaven and we will rise again with our bodily resurrection when Jesus returns we only ever die once in terms of physical death. But those who are not the Lord's will only be raised once, but they'll die twice. The physical death and the eternal death on the judgment day. So we need to draw our time to a close. Let's consider briefly the loosing of Satan for uh, his final judgment in verses 7 to 10. I'll be much more brief here. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
Again, I, I don't want to get too technical here. If you'd like to come and chat to me during the week about uh, some of these details, all I want to say is that when John sees that when Satan is released, what's happening here is not another battle, another battle which the, the premillennial view says happens after a little 1,000 years of Christ's reign in Jerusalem. As the armies of the world gather to, to war against the nation of Israel, what we have in these verses is simply just another parallel description of the same final battle that we considered last week in chapter 19. It's the same final battle we saw previously in chapter 16 and chapter 17, known as the Battle of Armageddon. In each of those earlier descriptions, we were told exactly the same thing, that all the kings and all the nations would gather together under the leadership of the dragon and his beasts to war against Jesus, and Jesus conquers them instantly because he is king of kings and lord of lords. One of the massive challenges to the, the literal chronological interpretation of the book of Revelation is that if chapter 20, as some would argue, follows on chronologically after chapter 19, how is it possible that the battle described here as a gathering of the multitudes of the earth, numbered like the grains of sand on the seashore, could gather for battle? How is that possible when last week at the end of chapter 19, we saw that all the armies of the earth gathered for battle, the rider on a white horse killed them all, every single one of them with the sword of his mouth. If Revelation 19 is what it says, then there are no evil people left when we get to chapter 20. And if the beast and the false prophet were thrown into hell in chapter 19 and Satan himself has been bound for the last thousand years, if you want to take a literal view, where did this multitude of evil people come from to war against Jesus? Now what we have here is, is a final description of the same day of judgment we considered last week that we've seen throughout the book of Revelation described for this final time with a focus now on the destruction of Satan. As Jesus destroys all his enemies and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur to face the eternal torment of, of God forever. We've run out of time. Uh, let me just close with a few words of, of so what um, in terms of this, this, this vision. What does this mean for you and for me uh, who are living in this period of the millennium before Jesus returns? Well, firstly, this is the season for gospel mission. Jesus declared in his parting word to his disciples all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Jesus has bound Satan from deceiving the world so that you and I can go out and declare the truth of the gospel to them. This should motivate us to evangelism and to missions and to discipleship. In, in two ways. Firstly, because we know that our faithfulness in sharing the gospel will be successful. Martin read to us that this morning that the word of God will not return to him without accomplishing his purposes. God has purpose to save a people through the preaching of the gospel. And so every person whom God has determined to save, they will respond, they will believe, and they will be saved. You and I are called to be faithful 
in proclaiming Jesus and his gospel message. So are you doing that? When last have you shared the gospel with anyone? The reason Satan is bound is not to make your life more comfortable. On the contrary, if you're saved, it will be less comfortable. The reason Satan is bound is so that you can use this time to share the gospel with others. But secondly, this should motivate us to evangelism because at the end of this millennium period when Satan is loosed, he will come out and he will once again deceive all the nations. And then it will be too late to share the gospel. If we are alive in that brief period before the end, we will see our friends and our family members and our colleagues totally duped by Satan as they openly worship the beast and take on his mark, and you and I will be able to do nothing. It will be too late. But Jesus has bound Satan until the end so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer, so that you and I can proclaim the gospel, so that the gospel will be successful to save. How can we sit on this and do nothing? And then just the second application, I think this vision is a great encouragement for us to remain faithful to the Lord in this life. Be that in the face of Satan's persecution, be it through the ups and downs of life, of living in a fallen and a broken world with sickness and suffering, with sadness and grief, a world of hardships and, and disappointment. We know that blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Satan may appear to be loosed in the realm of persecution. He may appear as a lion at large in the area of sowing chaos in your life. But God has got him on a tight leash. And if we keep on the straight path of faithfulness to Jesus, yes, you may at times smell his putrid breath, in your nostrils as he gets so close. You may even feel his spit hit you on the face as he growls at you. You may even bear some of the flesh wounds of having stepped a little bit too close off the path to him. But he's chained, he's bound, and our blessed salvation in Jesus Christ is guaranteed. May this encourage you to persevere in your walk with the Lord and may it encourage you to persevere in sharing this gospel truth with those around you who do not know him before it's too late. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word again this morning that has given us this insight into the, the spiritual realm of what is taking place in the world around us because Jesus Christ is reigning, because Jesus Christ is ruling, and because Satan is bound. Oh Lord, forgive us that we have used this season of Satan's binding to become complacent. We thank you for those faithful servants of Christ in the past who went out and proclaimed the truth, mothers to their children, husbands to their wives, family members, friends, colleagues, Many of us are sitting here today because others took the binding of Satan seriously and shared the gospel with us. 
So we ask that you would forgive us for our complacency to think that others will do this. Lord, you've called us to do this. You've called us for this purpose of being your ambassadors of, on this earth. And so we pray that you would keep us faithful to you in all the struggles and trials of life, knowing that in the end our salvation is secure and that you would give us a burden that we cannot but help share this good news of salvation with others. For we pray this in Jesus' name.